Hard to believe, but it's Tuesday, August 3rd. This is the Macro Setup. I'm joined by my dear friend, Dan Nathan. Today's episode is brought to you by our presenting sponsors, plural, IGUS, one of the fastest growing Forex dealers in North America. By the way, we're going to be joined by the great Chris Vecchio, senior strategist at Daily FX in a few minutes. And of course, Open Exchange, they manage virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. Dan, how are you today? August 3rd. I know. You know, guy, I, I just don't get it. You're always like, I can't believe it. Here we are. It's August. You know, like the calendar moves, man. And, and, and the markets move and the markets are kind of up this week. Why, guy, Dami? Because they're open time and tide. They wait for no man, as it turns out. Neither does the market because it no. continues to grind higher. And we've been obviously watching three things on our list this week, Dan. And these are the three things I think that are top of mind. Earnings recap, rates reverse, economic slowdown. Well, we're about 85% our way through earnings uh, this quarter. And this is my take, and I'm interested to hear yours. Yeah, I think it's pretty good on the margins. I mean, I think the quarter's earnings were strong. I think some of the guidance was sort of squishy. And that's the concern here for the market. Now, clearly, S&P 500 doesn't care, but maybe it should start because the guidance some of these camp companies gave was not particularly strong. Yeah, we've been talking about this for a while in the macro setup. I mean, the expectations were that Q2 earnings were going to be very strong, right? And the markets were up, I think, 17% for the S&P 500, you know, heading into earnings season. You know, there's been some kind of fits and starts. Um, I think some of it is maybe sector specific. I think, um, you know, we're going to look at uh, Amazon in a little bit, but we know that those massive super cap names have been driving a lot of the performance in the major indices while we've seen some major corrections under the hood and a lot of different mm -hmm. sectors. And those sectors that have been correcting are really important. We're going to hit some of the, the inputs um, that, you know, uh, of some of those industries that have kind of rolled over in the last couple of months, despite the fact that the S&P is up 17% on the year, the NASDAQ is up 13.5% and the Russell's up 11%. Yeah, I, I think, you know, this. I think this always is the case, but it's not necessarily the quarter, it's the guidance and it's yeah. how the stock performed into the quarter. I mean, there's so many variables, but so many of these stocks had huge runs into earnings. We talked about it on a few macro setups ago, how the setup was not particularly great given the run that they've had. And although the quarters, I think, especially if you're F MAGA complex, were strong, the guidance wasn't particularly. The, the caveat there, obviously, is Google. I mean, that quarter and that guidance was yeah. spectacular. But some of these other names you mentioned, we're going to take a look at an Amazon chart, wasn't particularly good, and, and they're getting punished. Now, what's remarkable to me is the fact that the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, hangs in there. I guess the question is for how much longer, um, and, and that really is now predicated on what's happening with interest rates, because great call by you, Dan, but rates have come down in a meaningful way, 175 or so in March. Here we are about, what, 115-ish yep. in, 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 in early August, and you have to wonder is the genie out of the bottle? And are we headed now sub uh, 1%? I'd be shocked if it happened, but quite frankly, we're within an earshot of it happening. Yeah, so let's look at the S&P 500. We have a one-year chart. You see that is a beautiful uptrend there. And the, the peak to trough declines are becoming shallower and shallower. I think the one that we had last month was a little less than 4%. We've had three or four this year that have been all below 5%. I think the S&P 500 has gone for more than 185 days without a greater than 5% peak to Drop decline. And it speaks to a little bit about what you're talking about with those super cap tech names. They've had these big runs into earnings, right? And, but I think it's really important, guy. And you just mentioned, you know, 
earning season. And it's a weird time, right? Because you can put it on the calendar four times a year. You know that every company, every major company is going to issue the results and they're going to talk about their trends. And most of them issue guidance. Well, look at a JP Morgan. You know, this stock is down nearly 9% from its highs that it was at prior to earnings. Now, you're, you may say, well, it didn't have much to do with earnings and their guidance because it was really good. Maybe it has more to do with rates, or maybe it is a discounting mechanism thinking about what comes next. I look at that S&P 500 chart. I know what you're going to say about that 200-day moving average. I know that, that it's held that 50-day moving average on numerous occasions over the last year. You break that uptrend, though, there is a lot of room to the downside. And we're right at the cusp of it. I mean, that uptrend, you that's a green line, folks. Listen, is it vulnerable? I absolutely think it's vulnerable, especially since we're through earnings and now we have all these variables in place, not, not least of which is this COVID, the rise again in COVID. I don't think you can yeah. discount that. But this uptrend line is in play without question, and we haven't come close. The closest we came to the 200-day moving average was probably on Halloween of last year, and we weren't even close then. And here we are. The gap continues to widen. It just suggests to me that at some point, you know, these standard deviations away from the 200-day, everything becomes mean reverting, and I think we're going to find that in the S&P. And maybe we do it this month, or maybe we do it in the fall. Historically, September, October have been sort of interesting months. But this chart, I think, speaks to a lot of different things. We are through earnings. What's the next catalyst higher? I'm not quite sure what that is, Dan Nathan. Yeah. And so let's look at the NASDAQ 100 because you see, you know, you talked about when the last time the S&P was near its 200-day. The NASDAQ was actually very close to it back in March and then again in May. And we've had some major volatility. If you look at that breakout, that bounce off of that uptrend that had been in place, you know, since late fall or so, um, you know, we're kind of buttoned up against that resistance. Um, we did see some hiccups in the major super cap names. Um, but to me, you know, the NASDAQ 100 could sell off down to 13900 or something like that, it would be a nice little sell-off. Um, and it might be a great opportunity to kind of reload if you're thinking about what the catalysts are in the year end. What does that, that NASDAQ chart say to you guys, the NBA? Very similar. I mean, I guess the bad news is that we've touched up against that upper end of the, of the band that you drew. Yeah. And then we seeming, seemingly, I should preface that, have failed. And again, what's the catalyst? What's the catalyst to take your FMAGA complex higher um, and that's really what's going to drive this thing. We're going to take a look at Amazon in a second. But, you know, these these a lot of these names seem to be rolling over. I mean, Apple specifically, you know, failed to make a new all time high in the back of earnings. Those things should be concerning. We'll see. What does this say to me? It says the 14,000 is absolutely in the crosshairs in terms of the lower end of that band. And obviously the 200 day moving average, about 13,300 thereabouts becomes in play. Again, you said it. We haven't seen this. Um, in quite some time. You wonder if it's going to correlate with the S&P. My sense is it will. But Amazon, to me, is really a chart you have to look at because, again, you know, strong earnings, but the guide sort of scared some people. And, you know, this stock, it's, an, it's incredible, the failed breakouts we've had a number of times. You look at Amazon, and it speaks to a chart that maybe it's going to trade down to that lower end, that 29.50 or so, Dan. Yeah, so it's interesting that you look at the S&P 500 had a 10% peak to trough decline from its September 2nd highs. Um, and then, you know, it, it went down, um, you know, it, it kind of banged around in a little range. But what's most important is some of those big names that were driving that performance. We know those top five names make up now about 25% of the S&P 500, about 45% of the NASDAQ 100. Those stocks got slammed. And I think that's the thing that people forget is that they're likely to um, outperform to the downside when the major indices go lower because 
because they've been helping to kind of levitate them. That Amazon chart, though, after that sharp decline in September, I mean, it had a one year nearly base going sideways. It broke out prior to earnings. And here it is now just above that 200 day uh, moving average in the midpoint of that range. Guy, you called that double bottom and you did think that we were going to kind of bang up against that 3,500. You called a breakout. I give you a lot of credit. You did it on this program. But now, given the fact that there is weak forward guidance, a new CEO, do you think this stock is going to remain range bound? And what will be the catalyst to kind of break it out? Well, there's the range. I mean, you, you showed it in that box. I mean, we've been basically, you know, X the last move up to 3,700, 3,750 yeah. or so. We've been in this range, very, very, um, did very, you know, just a very structured range since the summer of last year. And here we are banging between 2,950-ish and yeah. sort of 3,600, 3,550, to be honest with you. What is it going to take? Well, Three quarters in a row now where Amazon's reported, um, I think, strong quarter and the stock has not performed at all. Makes you wonder. I think that 2800, 2850 level or so, the lower end of that range is in play. And you wonder what happens if we break the 200 day and the 200 day, I think, is around 3250 or so. And we're pretty close. So if Amazon gives up the ghost here, what does that mean to the NASDAQ? And then obviously, what does that mean to the broader market, the S&P 500? Yeah, and I think that's really important. You just mentioned that alphabet quarter, which was phenomenal, nothing to poke at it. But the point is, is that you want to look at leaders, you want to look at these kind of fallen leaders a little bit, they might give you a sense of what might happen to the other names. And especially when people are particularly complacent and excited about the other names, they seem kind of tr crowded. But one of the biggest themes I'll just say, Guy, about the stock market before we kind of, I know we got a little micro here, but it's important from a macro standpoint, is that we've seen massive sector rotations, um, you know, small small caps in particular. Um, we've seen it in in, in energy and in, in cyclicals and some value names, and it's gone on and on where there's been major corrections uh, among those sectors. And I think the Russell 2000 is really important. Let's look at this thing because, you know, again, it really outperformed since we had the vaccine announcements in November, outperformed its large cap peers, but then it's really gone sideways since February. It's been trading in this big range here. And if you think about it, it's been, you know, made a series of lower highs since the spring, really tracking rates here. What do you think small cap stocks are saying their inability to confirm any of the new highs in the S&P 500 over the last six months? Small caps can't figure out what they want in terms of yields. I mean, obviously the most economically sensitive group is the small caps. You would have, you would have thought uh, interest rates going higher was suggestive of economic activity. And quite frankly, you saw that because we topped out in March in this chart, just when 10 year yields topped out. Now, I think what these stocks are saying is we don't really know what we want. Do we want higher yields? Because, again, that suggests uh, can greater economic activity. Or do we want yields to go down, which historically have been good for stocks? And I think that's exactly what it's telling you. I would submit this, Dan, that if you see the 1% that you've been talking about for a while in the 10-year, we're absolutely going to test that 200-day moving average and look at the lower end of that range. And we'll see what happens when we get there. What I will say is this. Historically, at least you know, from my vantage point, the Russell, the small caps, whatever you want to call it, typically lead the broader market by about, I don't know, two and a half or three months. We'll see if that's happening now. But again, this has not validated a breakout in the broader market at all. As a matter of fact, anything but. And we'll see what happens if we test the 200-day in the Russell. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think your point about them tracking interest rates is really important. Let's look at the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield, and you see that really uh, well-defined downtrend that has been in since late March. And you and I have been talking about it on the macro setup here, Guy. It really was sniffing out. You know, it, it literally it was in agreement with what the Fed's saying. And I know the Fed can jawbone rates, and they want them to stay lower, and 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 they, you know, taper this, and coming off ZERP that, you know, they've been pretty steadfast that they think that some of the inflationary pressures are due to the bottlenecks due Due to the you know the global supply chain being in disruption because of the pandemic and and we get it and now that the variant this delta variant is causing some concerns um, again it makes sense to me that rates are trending lower I'm with you though man I mean I think that one percent um, below that I think alarm bells might start going off in the halls of risk asset managers if you think about it because it's going to make a lot of people rethink right their models and what they have going on and you know again your guess is as good as mine. I think sub 1%, um, I think that people are going to be starting to rethink what 2022 growth looks like. And if we're back to pre-pandemic levels, and maybe just maybe a lot of these dislocations that we saw, and you're going to rip through some of these commodities, maybe it was transitory. Maybe it yeah. had to do with these bottlenecks. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I know Chris Vecchio is going to have some thoughts on this, but I don't want to make people's eyes glaze over. But you know, real, real yields in this country have never been lower. Just something to keep in mind. I mean, yeah. I don't know what that means. Quite, I have no idea what it means. I think I do in terms of markets and in our economy and stuff. But just put that out there and, and keep that in mind that real yields are at the slowest level, levels ever and ever is a long time. And I think we should take a look at the commodity charts that you mentioned. First one, obviously, we should look at is crude oil because, you know, it's telling a story. And you, you had this very well-defined uptrend since last fall seemingly have broken that uptrend. What happens? You, you've mentioned, I think Chris mentioned as well, he absolutely believes we could see the 200-day moving average, 58 and a half or so. And again, you drew a great chart a few weeks ago, this 13-year downtrend that we traded up to and failed at. And that is suggestive of maybe, you know, maybe the Fed does have it right. And, you know, crude oil is not traded particularly well. The underlying stock sort of led the commodity, which is interesting. But this crude chart speaks to something that you've been talking about now for a while. Yeah, so you make a great point, guys, about the equities leading. The OIH, that's the ETF that tracks the oil services, at its lows just a couple of weeks ago, was down 20% from its recent highs. The XLE, which is basically the large integrated, I think Exxon and Chevron make up maybe close to 40% of that, was also down about 10, 12% or so. And they really didn't bounce when crude retook that uptrend. So I think a break of that um, uptrend for the second time in a couple of weeks is significant. And listen, we're just kind of bunching this together here. Like, look at this copper chart. Again, that broke that downtrend, the 200-day moving average. Uh, it broke it twice now, okay, is in the earshot. What happens when you see a breakdown technically of a lot of these inputs that were an important part of a narrative about rising rates and why rates might continue to go higher? I think that's important. I don't know if you have anything to say on copper, but the lumber one guy, the, the lumber chart is the one that's astounding because it was one that was, you know, a lot of people were making the case for housing and why it's going to continue to go. But then when you saw lumber prices spike the way they did, that caused some hiccups. And we're starting to see some weaker housing data, right? And But the fact is, lumber's come all the way back. So what does this say to you that we're starting to either break down trends or reverse the entire moves of some of these inputs? Well, it says exactly what you've been saying. Oh, well, maybe the Fed does have it right. You know, I'm hard-pressed to believe that's the case. But these charts don't lie. And what does it, it mean? It also means that both copper... And lumber, and by the way, other commodities as well, topped out just as the 10-year yield 
ish was topping out around 175. It probably lagged it by about a month in both cases, but you understand what I'm saying. These correlated to higher yields, and then as yields sort of stopped and started to backtrack, these commodities did as well. It's fascinating when you think about how long it took, obviously, lumber to make that move and how quickly we reverse the entire thing. Stairs up, elevator down, as they say, and that's exactly what's happening in lumber. And I think there's some other things you want to take a look at quickly as well, because, you know, I think Lizanne Saunders put out a tweet about savings. I mean, this speaks to a lot of the things you've been saying. I mean, personal yeah. savings rate dipped. So maybe the Fed does have it right. Lowest since 2020, February 2020. I mean, this is fascinating. And again, it all sort of correlated in terms of our calendar right around yields uh, topping out in March. Yeah, this chart's really fascinating to me because we know what it is. It's the fiscal stimulus. And, and you know, a lot of people had made the argument that we kind of left our, our foot on the pedal for too long on the on the fiscal. They're obviously the Fed is going to overstay their welcome on the monetary policy. But, you know, this is to me, listen, I'm not an economist. I'm not a strategist. I'm just a dumb stock and, and options, you know, jockey here. But as long as I've been doing this in the business, everything reverts. And especially now that we're seeing these odd dislocations or these black swan offense, uh, events met with just massive amounts of stimulus. I mean, the fact is, is like you're going to have, you have the reversals and then you have these things revert. It just makes sense to me. And as far as one last point, Gal, just saying a lot of this fiscal stimulus is going to be rolling off. We're starting to see weakening economic data. You saw that Q2 GDP print. It came in well below expectations. A lot of people, our friend Peter Bookvar has mentioned that is anticipation of an inventory restocking that we are going to see possibly in the fall. And he could be right about that, but we're also seeing weaker concerns consumer confidence, do you think that's going to get better or worse as people start spending more money, the saving rate goes lower here, right? And fiscal stimulus rolls off. I think it goes um, the other way. And we've also seen some weaker housing data. So the data is weakening at a time where I think it just gives the Fed more cover to remain dovish guy. Yeah, no. And, and this is going to sound, I, I don't mean this to sound crass or mean spirited or, you know, I guess, um, not sympathetic with what's going yeah. on, but this Delta variant, quite frankly, is giving the Fed a lot of air cover as well, whether you like that or not. I mean, it probably is true. And we're going to see as we head into the fall, if this thing does get worse, what does it mean for the, re the reopening trade that everybody talked about for so long? I mean, the, the markets, market X S&P, X NASDAQ, all yeah. the other things are suggestive that we're not in for a major rebound, we're in for a major slowdown. And we'll see. And then the last thing we want to talk about, obviously, this is one of the things that you love to look at is Bitcoin, which has been pretty interesting. You know, I don't know what this is suggestive of, but we've been banging around between 28,000 yeah. and 40,000. We chopped up to that 40,000 level. A lot of good news recently on the Bitcoin front as opposed yeah. to some of the negative news. And now here we are. Yeah. So what I what I find Bitcoin really interesting is because it's just a, a gauge of sentiment for me. And it, it also helps me think about in, in a macro sense of, you know, dollar and gold and interest rates and, and just to kind of watch the way it trades. And, and so, you know, it topped out in April, I think, when the calls for inflation and, and how to combat it were its highest. And that doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. Because if inflation, you know, is one of the major reasons 
why somebody might allocate capital to Bitcoin, you would have thought that it might have been pressing higher, but maybe it was discounting the fact that some of this data was going to come in. You saw this recent bounce. It seems pretty technical. We found support at 29,000-ish. We found resistance at the prior highs from January and then again in uh, May, and we just failed. Never got to that 200-day moving average. So to your point, Guy, I think we probably find a home sometime uh, or somewhere in between this 30,000 to 40,000. And then the breakout is the thing that breaks out. You probably want to buy it. And I know that, you know, you like to play that sort of momentum and, you know, it might be a good short down to 29,000. Again, I'm not sure it's a great press down there. Um, You know, I just want to, you know, make one other point though um, about the economy. And you said the cover that the Fed kind of has, it just brings me back, Guy, to the obsession that investors and strategists and economists had in the post-financial crisis about a double dip recession. And for some reason, this time around, because we hit this crisis so hard with monetary and fiscal and the continued, I guess, insistence that we're going to kind of stay supportive, um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of fear of that. And that could be the very thing as we get into the end of the summer, into early fall, that causes that major correction in equities. We've had a lot of volatility and a lot of other risk assets, but not in the major equity indices. And I think that's something that people have to remember, SEP 2020, when we went down in a straight line, 10% in the S&P and the NASDAQ, and a lot of stocks went down a lot harder. Yeah, we didn't look, we didn't bring up a VIX chart this week um, because, we, you know, we talk about it every week. But what is interesting before we bring in Chris Vecchio is the fact that the VIX is not, listen, the S&P 500 made a new all-time high. The VIX didn't back that up. And yep. we didn't see the VIX below 15. We actually saw it closer to 20, which is interesting. But I think now's a good time, Chris Vecchio, Senior strategist, senior currency strategist at Daily FX to take a look at things. Chris, you heard what we were saying over the last 15, 20 minutes or so. Some of your thoughts before we look at your charts. Gentlemen, it's great to see you again. And I think we got to start with that personal income, a personal savings chart from Liz Ann Saunders. Uh, you know, if we take out the government transfers, we actually have personal income down below where it was in February 2020 when we adjust for inflation. And when we talk about a slowing economy right now, there are those warning signs out there. Yes, we've called this the wall of worry. The market will work its way through it. But the fact of the matter is that we're not going to have the same amount of fiscal stimulus that we have had in the past. So a negative fiscal impulse is coming. And with these Delta variant worries continuing to grow, it looks like there's going to be a greater drag, perhaps on services, which have been a big part of the recovery. Now, I know that GDP, there were some hijinks in there, people talking about the you know, reduction in inventories, and that perhaps would be a sign of inventory build in the future quarters, which is always good for growth. But I think there's a different interpretation. If we're being consistent with what's going on with supply chains, perhaps it's a sign that we have producers not able to meet demand. And so uh, right now in the very near term, I think that we are looking through a rockier period for growth. And when we sprinkle in the fact that we now have all this news coming out of China about how they're cracking down uh, on their tech sector, they're trying to constrain inflationary impulses domestically, we are facing a situation where over the last few weeks, uh, those flows in emerging market currencies have begun to deteriorate. The flows in emerging market equities have begun to deteriorate. Uh, and so right now we are in a tricky situation, but one in which the Fed has plenty of air cover, as you guys have noted. Uh, these concerns, this fear, this uncertainty, this doubt, but as the cryptocurrency world calls it, it's very much infecting the markets and it gives the Fed as much time as it needs in order uh, to continue to keep rates low. Now, with that said, when we see where we are in the cycle, we do have yields plunging to lows. We have U.S. real yields sitting all, at all-time lows. And that theoretically should bring us to you know our next point of view, which is gold 
why isn't gold doing better right now? Gold prices have been struggling, if you will. You know, we were talking about a potential bull flag against a longer term trend line from the May 2019, March 2020, uh, April 2021 swing lows. And yet we're still not going anywhere. Uh, U.S. real yields at all time lows should theoretically be great for gold. Gold doesn't have a coupon. It doesn't have a mm -hmm. dividend, no cash flow. It should benefit right now. And it's not still. And until we get above 1835, I'm really not confident in this chart. But I do want to take a different interpretation, perhaps. It may be the case that instead of a bull flag that we've been working through since the uh, last summer, let's say July, August, we could be forming into a symmetrical triangle of sorts, which would speak to more consolidation, more sideways chop here. And, you know, Guy, Dan, I've said this to you guys before, but if we can't rally in this environment, I don't know where it's going to rally. You know, yeah. Guy, what are your thoughts on that? No, Chris, that's exactly right. I don't understand it. I mean, I mentioned real yields, the lowest they've ever been, and, and ever is a long time, as you mentioned. I mean, this is the environment, theoretically, where gold should be flourishing, and it's not. We spoke to Michael Saylor a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned the fact that, listen, you know, given the choice between the two, Bitcoin and gold, he's going to take Bitcoin every day of the week. And, you know, he said to a large extent, you know, the rise in crypto has taken away some of the firepower that gold would have just in terms of where the money would be being allocated. So maybe that's it. I'm not certain that's the case, but that's a good enough explanation. But I'll tell you, and you just said it, if gold can't rally in the environment that we find ourselves in with so many crazy things in terms of real yields, when is it going to do it? Maybe it's just sort of biding its time until the fall. We'll see. Or maybe it needs a broader market sell-off. I don't know, but you make a great point. You know, if not now, when? Well, you know, that's actually a big part of this. We're seeing gold struggle, not just because of real yields, but if we turn to the U.S. dollar for our next chart, the dollar's been coming off. Last week mm -hmm. when we spoke, uh, you know, I, I cast some dispersion on the ability for the dollar to rally because an environment defined by lower real U.S. yields, shrinking Fed rate hike odds, and this seemingly uh, receding growth impulse, it didn't speak well for the greenback. And now we find ourselves back within our symmetrical triangle. And in large part, this is driven by the next chart, which is, the euro and, and the euro itself has really been priced into an extreme uh, last week and still this week as we talk about we have ecb rate expectations plunged to its current level through 2025 how much more dovish can we get here and and so right now this market is showing signs of a turn as the largest component of the dollar index it speaks to the fact that the dollar may have more downside the technical mm -hmm. shift has occurred dan do you think that this chart the technicals as they're set up now could give a little bit more recovery to the euro you know, it's, you know, it's great, Chris. I was looking at your gold chart and listening to you describe it. And, you know, you showed that downtrend and it had broken out above it. You called it a flag. You called it this. And I, and I really like the way you thought about charting it, that maybe that thing is moving into a triangle from that downtrend. And maybe like there's more chop, as you said. And I think that's really important for a lot of um, investors who rely on charts as, as Guy and I do also. And you obviously, it's an important input into your thing. So to me, I, I really love the way you frame that. And when I look at this chart right here with the euro, I mean, all of the qualitative things that you and I and Guy have been talking about over the last couple of months about the euro spoke to lower and it kind of explained why the dollar was going higher despite what you just said about real yields going negative. But here's an opportunity now where maybe you get that bounce with lower dollar up to that trend line that you've drawn, that triangle, and maybe that's the level in which you kind of take a shot um, for a short, right? Uh, you know, you want to let things breathe a little bit. And I'd say this is that, you know, Guy and I have been talking about it as you have. 
you know, that Dixie at 90, right, is probably a buy. It's not a great press, especially if the Eurozone continues to do relatively worse than we're doing, let's say, as it relates to their economy reopening. So I love how you kind of threaded the needle on some of this stuff, because to me, I think, you know, I don't want to press that thing before it gets to that nice little uptrend that it broke. That's when I would kind of want to lay into that on the short side. Does that make sense to you? I think that makes a ton of sense right now. And, and for the dollar in this environment, you know, we have this air cover for the Fed to keep rates low. Yeah. We're heading into Jackson Hole. It doesn't seem like we're going to get something substantive on, on the same level as the average inflation targeting shift that we got last year. And that means September realistically becomes the first time where they can begin to outline any taper conditions. I, I myself don't see the taper announcement coming until at least December as things stand, with that taper not starting until January 2022. And that kind of brings us to the dollar yen chart here, because we have yield going down. Dollar yen is effectively a one-way street. JGBs don't do anything. That's why they call it the Widowmaker. Uh, and, and U.S. Treasury yields are heading to the downside. So a period in which equities could chop around and or trade lower, with U.S. yields heading lower, perhaps the 10-year gets below 1% again, dollar yen just looks really, really heavy. And so we have this rising bearish wedge here measured against the low at the start of the year, it appears that we could be going into another swing to the downside here. And that's just not for dollar yen. That means CAD yen, which is highly sensitive to oil prices. That means euro yen, pound yen, and even Aussie yen. Aussie yen has been one of these charts that uh, plagued by the RBA, which is tilting more and more dovish as we have these lockdowns coming back into place in Australia. Uh, Guy, when you look at this chart here, is this something that screams a buy to you or would you be cautious? No, cautious. 108 to me is a level. You, you break 108 and I, and I think that's, to me, there's an inevitability there. You break 108, then you're wondering, do we look at levels we last saw earlier this year, which I think, if, if I'm not mistaken, is 102 and a half, 103. So this looks like it is rolling over to me. I think it's a great chart. You outlined it, and you gave the reasons why. But to me, if you're looking for a line in the sand, folks, it comes in the form of 108 or, or thereabouts. I, I would certainly agree with you. And there's one pair, though, that we haven't discussed, which is kind of an interesting test bed for all these concerns around the Delta variant, and that's the British pound versus the dollar, because the UK just went through a very significant surge in Delta variant infection rates, and yet they're now starting to come back down. We're seeing that the efficacy of the vaccines still holding up in that 80, 90% threshold. And so all those fears that we had about the British pound, if it was from Brexit, if it was from uh, the way the government's been handling COVID with Boris Johnson and Freedom Day, we don't really need to go into that rabbit hole, but the pound here is showing a lot of strength. So this is the Part, this is the pair that I'm watching perhaps most over the next few weeks. And I say that because if the pound dollar is able to recover in this environment, that speaks to the market being a little bit over-concerned about Delta. If the British pound is able to rally back towards its yearly highs, I think that's great news for equities long-term. Yes, we're in the middle of year two of a bull market. That is the most difficult time for the bull market during a recovery. Uh, but the pound showing strength here in the face of all these doubts with the concerns about Delta in the U.S., should theoretically be more dollar positive and yen positive. This is a sign of resiliency. And Dan, if we see 143 in pound dollar, do you think that means that these delta bearing concerns could be overblown and just another brick in the wall of worry? 
<laughs> no, I see what you did there. Guy Adami is going to have to get in on that one here. Um, you know, I think you have a great range here, 136 to 143. You're right about the, the kind of almost the midpoint of that. Um, it seems like no man's land. But to your point, if there is some headlines about them doing better and, you know, just, you know, you're going to be right back up against that. I'm not sure what the catalyst is um, for the breakout. Um, and at that point, when you have these well-defined ranges, especially in currencies, the way you guys can use stops and that sort of thing, it makes sense that kind of maybe lay out the short because it also brings you back to that uptrend that goes back um, to 2020. Sure, I hear you. Uh, Guy, what are your thoughts on this? I think, listen, I think the worst is over here and I do think we're back in, you know, back in sort of rally mode and maybe they are ahead of us in terms of, you know, they're through it, we're not. And, and maybe, maybe that speaks to strength here. I do think you're going to test, in my opinion, the upper end of that range, which if I'm not mistaken, comes in around 142 and a half. And again, we'll see what that means for a host of other things. You know, what does it mean? You know, what will U.S. yields be doing in, in, a, in alignment with that? What will the broader stock market be doing? I don't know, but I think you drew the right chart. And I think we do test that 142 and a half level, Chris. I'm with you. A little bit more dollar weakness can play a long way. The pound is mm -hmm. the largest component in the DXY. So if we do see a little bit more DXY weakness around our U.S.-based concerns and we see the pound or rather the U.K. continue to recover from its recent wave, uh, and those excess death rates stay low. Ultimately, I think that's the canary in the coal mine for us that we want to be watching for that speaks to uh, perhaps a nice fourth quarter for equities as we work our way through these concerns in the near term. Well, Chris, thanks for joining us. Obviously, Chris Vecchio, Senior uh, FX Strategist at Daily FX. Dan Nathan, I want to thank you. It's also time to thank our sponsors, as they say. But Dan, any closing words? Yeah, I think what Chris just kind of wrapped up with, with, with a fourth quarter rally for for equities. I think there's a lot of stuff that can happen. Q3 could maybe be the shakeout. I think that people want to get long. They have lots of reasons to get long equities, but they first probably need a proper correction to kind of put a little fear back in investors, kind of reset valuation expectations. So I agree with that. I think that would be the best thing for equities near term would be a sell-off in August or September and reload for a, for a rally in the quarter end to close at the highs. Well, again, thanks, Chris Vecchio, senior, a senior FX strategist at Daily FX. And Dan, let's thank our sponsors, both of them, IGUS, one of the fastest growing Forex dealers in North America, and of course, Open Exchange. They manage virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. We'll see you next week's macro setup. It'll be August 10th. Dan Nathan, <laughs> have a good afternoon. Thanks, Guy. Thanks, Chris.